Well, hello. Uh, it's very good to be with, with you all again. I'm grateful to be back from very cold Louisville, to be home to San Francisco. And uh, yeah, you never appreciate 40-degree weather until you've been in 32-degree weather. And then you're just like, oh, yeah, this is great. It's warm. It's wonderful. So um, yeah, it's great, good to be back with you guys. And uh, thank you, Justin, for reading the, the, the word for us tonight. Um, and I hope that you guys were all able to enjoy last week the break um, with Boba and board games and grateful to the Reach team for ministering to us in that way. Um, this week, we're going to return to our series, Why We Believe, and we're going to be covering the doctrine of the church. And um, you know, before, we, before we get into our message, why don't we pray one more time and, um, and uh, ask the Lord for his blessing. Uh, I do want to make a note, though, that... Um, you know, I understand that whenever we cover the church, there's always going to be some aspect of a sore spot when it comes to the church, because there are times where, um, where we, having come from a previous church context or a previous church ministry, we come back and we go to a new church, and we're always comparing the, the, the ministry that we're currently at to the ministry that we're formerly at. And so I'll be addressing some issues pertaining to that tonight. And I want to assure you that even though I might come down slightly hard on it, I'm not meaning to cause any offense to you that's, that doesn't belong there. Uh, if you rightly are convicted by that, you know, praise God. Um, but uh, basically what I'm trying to say is I'm not going out of my way to passive-aggressively attack those of you who struggle with this. I realize that it's, it's a struggle because I've struggled with the same thing coming home from uh, two different trips down to L.A. and being in two different church bodies. So I just wanted to, to, to make note of that as we begin our time. But uh, let's, let's open up our time in prayer and uh, let's ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, we're grateful for this evening. We're grateful for another week, another day where we could live for you. We're grateful for your kindness and your blessing upon us. And we pray that, uh, Lord, as we study your word, that you would give us humble hearts as we revisit a very familiar doctrine to to us and oftentimes we look at the church and um, we kind of get tired of hearing messages about the church because it always seems like what we're being told to do is to be here and to give money and father even though those are aspects of worship we pray that lord you would help us just to see a bigger part of uh, your intent for the church and uh, what you're doing in the church uh, through christ uh, this evening. So, Father, we pray for your help. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. May you be honored and glorified uh, during this time. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know, well, if you were to ask anybody what their thoughts about the church are, they're probably going to say something along the lines of, the church is a place where Christians go to worship on Sundays. And that's certainly true, but as you know, there is more to church than that very simple definition. When I was assigned to preach on this doctrine, I initially thought about preaching to you about the aspects of church life that you guys are familiar with, such as why it's important for us to be together as a part of the church body um, and to grow in our love for one another. But as I thought about it further, I know that you guys already know that. You already know the importance of being together, about loving one another, about having that good body life together because You've heard it before. And for those of you who are part of ETC along with me, our, you know, our theme verse was Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That was our theme verse. That was the thing that we preached at you all the time. And if you forgot, I was a part of ETC, so I'm not just saying this broadly, right? But not only that, but the last few years, you've either had retreat themes or workshops based on this aspect of loving one another, biblical friendships. So you already know, the majority of you, that we're supposed to love one another, that we're supposed to care for one another, that we as the body ought to have good relationships with one another. You know this already. And for those of you who, are, who were in college during the time that ETC was covering this, even if you weren't part of ETC or perhaps you were away at college, you know inherently from your experiences with church, whether it's here or away, that the church is supposed to be a place of loving community, 
right? That's the buzzword of church right now, right? We're always looking for community. Where's the new community that I can go to, that I can fit into, that I can be a part of? We're always talking about community. And for those of you who've had the privilege of going away for school and you had to go find a church to attend, you weren't necessarily just looking for good preaching. Well, at least you, I hope you were looking for good preaching, and, and then you were looking for community as well, not the other way around, right? But you were looking for that community. You were looking for that place of belonging because you understood that church life wasn't meant to be lived alone, that it was supposed to be lived with other people. And when you were at those churches, you've experienced community. You've experienced how those other churches bring us together. And so you come home with those ideas of what it would look like to build body life together, right? to build that sense of community. And for many of you who've gone away, right, those other churches that you've been a part of, that you've had the privilege of being a part of, they've informed your vision for what church should be like, for what this church should be like. And when you come back, you appreciate the things that we do have, right, the multi-generational uh, aspect of it. But then you also can see some of our weaknesses as well. And that's a good thing. I'm telling you, that is a good thing. Because I had the same opportunity, and it's good to come home and realize, hey, we're a little weak here. We can shore this up. But sometimes, when we come home, even if we've been warned by our college pastors before we come home to be humble, to not stir up trouble and not to be critical of our home church. We can't help but adopt a critical spirit towards the church because it's not like the church that we experienced in college or grad school. Right? The weaknesses that we see within SFBC becomes areas that either cause us to desire to leave, to go pursue a church that is more similar to what we've experienced in college or grad school, or to have this idea of, you know what, we need to radically reform SF Bible. And you might be right. But um, you know, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we do need to change the church. Sometimes we do need reform. We've seen in the past, and there will be in the future, changes that occur. I'm not saying this to, you know, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, nudge. I'm going to change things on you again. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, because we're a church, because we're a growing church, change inevitably occurs. Right? And it's, it's in those moments that we must remember whose church this is. No matter whether we're here at SF Bible or if God moves us on to other churches, we need to remember when it comes to the doctrine of the church, whose church it is. Any time that you feel tempted to reject something that happens at church, because it is your church, you must slow down and remember to whom the entire church belongs. Of course, if I were to ask you that question, you'd probably give me the expected Sunday school answer, right? Whose church is it? It's Jesus's. And you'd be right. The church belongs to Jesus. But armed with that, armed with that knowledge, with that reminder, we're left with the question of, okay, well, what now? If the church belongs to Christ, how does knowing that help me understand who we are and what we're supposed to do? So our goal this evening is to examine two foundational truths about Jesus that will deepen our understanding of the church's purpose. Now, I'm not promising that it's going to cover everything, every itch, but we're going to look at two foundational truths about Jesus that will hopefully help us deepen our understanding of the church's purpose. And the first foundational truth about Jesus that we want to examine is Christ, the divine foundation. Christ, the divine foundation. Now, as we approach Matthew 16, Jesus has just performed a bunch of big miracles, right? a number of miraculous miracles, and no one could deny the existence of these miracles. We have the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 as the big ones that he had just performed. And there were others in between, but the big ones that no one could deny was the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of 4,000. Right? And with those big miracles, there was a lot of speculation regarding Jesus' community, I mean, Jesus' identity in the community. 
And so people were speculating wildly as to who he was. Now, due to their knowledge of the biblical prophecies, specifically Daniel's 70-week prophecy in Daniel 9, the Jews were expecting for Messiah to come to help deliver them from the Romans. So they were expecting that. But who would Messiah be? Now, you know on this side of the cross that it's Jesus, but they didn't know that. All they knew, all they understood about Messiah was that he was supposed to be a conquering king. And even though Jesus was doing great signs before them, they didn't understand what the purpose of those signs were. And so the questions that they had regarding who Jesus was, was based off of the confusion. Is he Messiah or is he someone else? Who is he? And so that's why they were speculating as to who he was. Now, after some questioning from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus and his disciples, they go to the region of Caesarea Philippi. So, if, uh, so Caesarea Philippi is at the very northern tip of Israel. So they're very, very far away, which means that they're also far away from the influence of the religious leaders. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee and it's 40 miles southeast of Damascus. So it was very far away up in the Gentile-type regions of Israel, or at least there were more Gentiles that lived there. And so the reason why Jesus and his disciples went up to the northern part of Israel is because after all of these miracles, there was a lot of attention on them. Right? And so in order for Jesus to get away, to purposefully have time, intentional time with his disciples to be able to instruct them for what's coming next, they go up to the, Gentile re- to the more Gentile region of Israel to get away from the religious leaders and all the people. So they move up north to get there. And as Jesus has some distance from the crowds, he tells his disciples who he is. But he does this in the form of a question. And that question was designed for the purpose of instruction. And so he says in in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so when he says that, when he says the Son of Man, when he identifies himself as the Son of Man, that's really significant. Many of you, you know that this is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. But this title that he refers to himself to does have messianic implications. It's not just that Jesus was humble. Yes, he is humble. right? He is humble, but he does so purposely. He calls himself the Son of Man purposely because when you take into account prophecy, you actually realize the significance of the statement that he's making. There are a number of different prophecies that refer to the Son of Man. But the one that I would draw your attention to by reference is Daniel 7, 13 to 14. And the reason why Daniel 7, 13 to 14 is so significant is because Daniel, when he, is, when he receives a vision in the night, he sees one as like a son of man going up to the Ancient of Days. He's presented to the Ancient of Days. And when he's presented to the Ancient of Days, he's given an everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. The Son of Man receives the kingdom, glory, and an everlasting dominion so that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So when Jesus says that he's the Son of Man, when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's not necessarily just being humble, right? But he actually is kind of hinting towards the people who are listening to him, specifically the disciples right here, that he is something bigger than just a man. And Granted, I am cheating ahead for you a little bit before Peter's confession, but I do so to show you the implications of Jesus' reference. And additionally, when you take into account how all the people are waiting for Messiah, taking into account Daniel 9, thinking Messiah's coming any day now, where is he? When Jesus says, "Who who do the people say that the Son of Man is? He is bringing out this idea of, hey, that's me. The one you're waiting for in Daniel 9, that's me. All right, so this is what's really informing 
our minds and our thoughts as we're, as we're studying this text. Okay? Now, the disciples, they're reporting what the people are, were saying about Jesus. And they tell him that some people have speculated that he is John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, the suggestion that Jesus was John the Baptist is likely related to Herod's guilt and fear for executing John the Baptist, ultimately to please his wife, who was really his brother's wife. And if you don't know the story, you can look at Matthew, um, Matthew 14, verses 1 to 2, and you can see why he did that. But because of Herod's fear and guilt for, what he, for, for executing John the Baptist, though John the Baptist did nothing wrong, he thought that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist who came back to haunt him, basically. Right? So, the, so he's like, ah, it's John the Baptist. And then other people who heard him were like, oh, yeah, maybe he is John the Baptist because John the Baptist was a man of God. And so maybe it's John the Baptist. Now, other people, they thought that Jesus was Elijah. And they thought that he was Elijah based off of Malachi 4.5, where God reveals that he's going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And there's that day of the Lord imagery that we have again, right? Judgment. Right? And so if judgment is coming, perhaps... It, you know, if judgment is coming because of Daniel 9, because the, um, because, because the Messiah is coming, perhaps this one who is doing great signs is Elijah, the one who comes before the day of the Lord to restore the hearts of the, of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers, to restore Israel's relationships with one another. Perhaps that's Elijah. Right? Perhaps this is the forerunner to Messiah. So that's why they're thinking, maybe it's Elijah. Again, um, or next, the, the next person that people thought Jesus was, and uh, there, there's no other um, suggestions that are given here outside of Jeremiah, it was Jeremiah. Right? And so the reason why Jeremiah is brought up is because in the Apocrypha, in 2 Maccabees um, 2, it records the fact that Jeremiah had gone, he had taken the ark of God and the altar, and he had taken them to heaven to hide them from the Babylonians so that when the Babylonians came by and destroyed the temple that they wouldn't destroy the ark and the altar. And then eventually, at a time to come, Jeremiah would come back. He would bring the ark of God back to the temple along with the altar so that worship could be restored. And so that's why these people were thinking, maybe he's Jeremiah. And there were some other prophets that they thought would happen too. Again, the Apocrypha, or sorry, not again, but the Apocrypha is, if you don't know, it's included in a lot of Roman Catholic Bibles, but basically it's just Jewish myth. It's not really scripture, so we don't pay attention to it, but it does inform our minds of what the Jewish people were thinking at that time. Now, you might be asking, Pastor Roger, we're looking at the church. Why are you going through all this background information? Well, it is relevant to our study because... When we talk about the church, when we talk about what defines a legitimate church and what defines a cult, it is vitally important for us to understand three things. Three things. This is how you can determine whether who you're encountering is a member of a cult or a member of an actual church. Right? What do they say about Christ? What do they say about the nature of the scriptures? And how does salvation occur? Okay. What, is the, what does the religion say about Christ? What's the, what do they say about the nature of the scriptures? And how does salvation occur? The reason why we spend so much time examining these possibilities of who Jesus is is because it is absolutely important for us to understand who Christ is in the church. If we have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, if he's just a prophet, if he's just a nice guy who got killed by accident, then there is no salvation for you. There is no salvation for me. We have to make sure that the Jesus that we worship, the Jesus that we, that we love, is the Jesus of the Bible, not some other Jesus. So though, though people might have different views of who he is, the only view of Jesus that will save is the right view of Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. What is the right view? Well, Peter, 
speaking for the rest of the disciples, he answers and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Bingo. Peter's conclusion is right on the mark, and that's evidenced by Jesus' reply. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And because Peter is the spokesman, Jesus, he singles him out, and he calls him blessed because Jesus was properly identified, because Peter didn't fall for any of these other possibilities that Jesus might be. But he correctly identified Jesus as Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus notes that this is not something that Peter was, able to come up, uh, was, was not able to come up on, on his own. He didn't come to this conclusion on his own due to his biblical knowledge or just his ability to put two and two together. Peter's correct conclusion about Jesus' identity is a result of God the Father opening Peter's eyes and revealing the truth to him that Jesus isn't just a man, but he's the Son of God. He's the awaited Messiah. And Peter's answer is incredibly nuanced. When he says that Jesus is the Christ, he's identifying Jesus as the Messiah. He's identifying Jesus as the one, the promised king who will come to reign on earth and deliver, deliver his people from the enemies. He is the one who will bring the nation back to God. That's what he's saying when he says, you are the Christ. He's saying, you are the awaited king, the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for to make all things right. That's who Jesus is, right? But not only that, not only that, when he says that you are the son of the living God, Jesus is being elevated beyond what some conceive the Messiah to be because he is put on the same plane as God. As the son of the living God, Jesus would share the same nature as God the Father. He would be God, very God. There were a a good number of Jews who actually believed that the Messiah was just a conquering king who would come and just deliver the people from their political enemies, which means that like David, Messiah could potentially just be a, a human, just a man who would come in, deliver the people, and then die. But more devout Jews understood that Messiah was, son of God, was the Son of God. That he would be divine himself and that he would, as we see in Daniel 7, reign forever. That he would have an everlasting dominion and kingdom. No, this is why in just a few verses, Peter rebukes Jesus for telling the disciples that he would be killed and then be raised up three days later. We often ridicule Peter Because we think, oh, there's the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth again. He's just putting his foot in his mouth, rebuking Jesus. How dare he rebuke Jesus? You know, he he was called blessed, and then within a span of a few moments, Jesus calls him Satan, right? He says, get behind me, Satan, but put yourself in Peter's place. He has this grand idea of who Jesus is. He understands Jesus to be Messiah, the son of the living God. And so in his mind, Messiah can't die. Think about that. In his mind, Messiah cannot die. Messiah has to live forever. He has to reign forever. And then here Jesus is saying, I have to go get killed. And then I'll be raised again three days later. In Peter's mind, Peter's like, where'd you get your theology from? That's not what you're supposed to do. You're Messiah. You're supposed to live forever. So Peter, you have a little bit of sympathy for him. He's not necessarily, in this case, sticking his foot back in his mouth. He just doesn't understand the full picture. He doesn't understand the full picture. And so, as we know, Peter's limited understanding of the entirety of Christ's being and mission is going to be filled out by God later, eventually. But what is important to note here is that Even though God allowed for Peter to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, there was much more that God still had to reveal to Peter. And so that's why we we should cut Peter some slack here. Now, despite Peter needing to have a few more details filled out by God, the most important thing to see here is that what what God reveals to him at this time, Jesus is no mere man. He is not merely a political savior. He is the divine son of God. 
And as we look at this first foundational truth about Jesus and how it deepens our understanding of the church, Jesus being the divine foundation of the church is helpful for us to consider because we're reminded of the fact that the church is not our creation, right? Nor is it our idea, but it belongs entirely to Jesus. The church is his. That's actually really comforting when you think about it, right? Because no matter how your human leaders run the church, even if they make mistakes, even if they're not perfect, the church belongs to the divine Son of God who is sovereign, who has all power and has all authority. He's the one who moves the church where he wills, and he uses imperfect servants like you and me to move the church in that direction. Isn't that comforting? The fact that you and I no matter what we do, can't do anything to screw it up. It's really helpful. It's really encouraging. Right? We can make all the mistakes that we want. We could even ruin our testimony. And yet God is still strong enough. He's still strong enough to work past our sin, to work past our mistakes, and to bring glory to himself. Isn't that cool? No matter how imperfect you and I are, he is strong enough to bring his church to the end, to the end goal, to the end point. That's how strong your Savior is. That's how strong your divine foundation of the church is. Isn't that amazing? That is so amazing. And as a result, we ought to slow down and remind ourselves what church is about whenever we get tempted to be really territorial about the church. Yes, we are rightly exhorted to care about being at church because we are commanded to be here and we're commanded to want to love, love one another. But ultimately, we are here because we want to worship Christ. And part of our worship of Christ means that we submit ourselves to him. We humble ourselves. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are so prideful when it comes to church. And that's why sometimes we get into these worship wars. That's sometimes why we get all angry with one another when church isn't done our way. But we humble ourselves, not necessarily just for one another, but we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We humble ourselves to him and we submit ourselves to him as we strive to serve his people. Sometimes we get really caught up in the programs of the church and we forget that God actually doesn't really care about the worldly success of our programs. We forget that God doesn't care about the worldly success of our programs. Now, please do not hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that programs are unnecessary and that we should get rid of them in order to get back to the true church. Okay, I'm not saying that. And also, please don't think that I'm saying that it doesn't matter if we do a poor job in executing our programs. Programs are a necessary part of the church because sometimes a formalized ministry can be helpful in implementing biblical principles within the church. Joint heirs is an example of that. All right, we exist to build up one another to build up and edify one another in the college and career stages of life. And our greatest desire is that through our studies in the word and through our discipleship times, whether they're formal or informal, that we would spur one another on into greater Christ-likeness. Right? That's our goal. That is our greatest desire is that we do that with one another. You know, we, at, at this church, we have a children's and student ministry as well. And we don't have these things in our church because we want to boost our numbers because the church growth manual said that if you want to build your church, you have, you have youth ministry, right? That's not why we have youth ministry in this church. We have youth ministry in this church because we desire to be faithful, to come, along the parents, to come alongside the parents in this church who worship here and reinforce the biblical teaching that those children are receiving at home. 
Our desire is to come alongside them, to minister with them to their children. And we do that with the hope, with the hope that God will have mercy and save these dear ones and bring them to himself. That's why we do it. That's why we have these programs. All of these program ministries and other, others like them here in this church were created with the desire to help us teach and live out biblical principles in our lives. They give us an avenue for evangelism. And because we ultimately want to make sure that God is glorified in everything that we do, we want to make sure that we do all of these ministries excellently. But we are not and should not be identified by our ministries. We ought to be defined by our divine foundation, Jesus Christ. Anything that we do within these program ministries ultimately takes the back seat in priority to glorifying Christ and making him known. If we're not doing that in our program ministries, we should get rid of them. Program ministries within the church are not just to go reach out to people for reaching out to people's sake. They are always meant to glorify Christ and to make him known. That is the purpose of the church and the purpose of all of our program ministries. And yes, it is important for us to have goals and plans in our ministries. And I'm not saying that they're not important. But all of us, servant leaders and members of this church body, ought to remember that our success is not defined by our ability to execute our best laid plans but to be faithful before the Lord, to showing Christ to one another and exhorting one another to grow in Christ-likeness. Recently, I had a chance to speak with an embattled, faithful pastor whose ministry was coming, up, uh, coming under fire because people didn't like the way that his ministry made decisions. And even though he was really discouraged by the criticism that he was experiencing, he reminded me, that even if changes do need to be made in his ministry, the most important thing to do within the church is, and for the church is to be faithful to God, to be faithful to the word. That's the most important thing that the church can do, is to be faithful to the teaching of the word and to God's desires. What we know from the word what it tells us that God wants, that's what we need to be faithful to. And for a pastor under fire, under heavy criticism, because his ministry is being criticized, to say, yeah, some of that might rightly belong to me, and we'll make the changes where it's appropriate. But the most important thing that we do as a church is to be faithful to the word. That's really encouraging. And it's really helpful and it's really humbling because, you know, I mean, some of you might look at that and be like, well, that's just defiance. It could be, it could be uh, interpreted that way. But it's encouraging because, you know, when we don't know what ministry is going to look like in the next coming years, right? Whether it be to the government clamping down on churches and take away, taking away our religious freedoms or even just difficulties that come up in life. We have no idea what church ministry is going to look like. And God's not going to judge us based off of how our ministry, how big our ministry was, how successful we were to keeping to our five-year plan. He's not judging us on that. He will judge us, however, on how faithful we were to doing his will and to doing his word. Even if this church gets stripped down to nothing, even if we only have 20 people and half of those people are the pastor's kids, we will desire to be faithful to the Lord. That's our greatest desire, and that should be all, all that we want to do. God will grow his church, and he'll be glorified even if our worldly efforts don't produce much worldly fruit. And so as we strive to glorify and honor Christ in his church, you can be sure that none of our deeds will be done in vain because the divine foundation of the church is the one who will glorify himself. Right? You know that he'll answer that prayer. He will glorify himself, and all of his purposes are ultimately fulfilled through his servants. Now, how do we know? that his plans will come to pass even if ours don't, it's because this divine foundation is also the cornerstone of the entire church. He sets the direction. And that leads us to our second foundational truth about Jesus that we want to examine, and that's Christ, the cornerstone of the church. Verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. 
Verse 18 is perhaps one of the most controversial verses between Catholics and Protestants because this text is used by Catholics to support the idea that Jesus established the church on Peter and his descendants, thus establishing the authority of the popes to establish church doctrine. But is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, obviously, we're in a Protestant church, so you know that my answer is going to be no. But why? He is not, in this case, when he's talking, renaming Peter here just because. Right? We already know that Peter was known as Simon Peter. That's already a part of his name. And Jesus just called him by his, his Jewish name, Simon, and referred to him as the son of Jonah. That's a really Jewish thing to do. Right, Simon, son of Jonah, or Simon Bar-Jonah. And then here we have this emphasis on the more Greek aspect of Peter's name. And it's really curious, right? Because the context seems to indicate that there is some wordplay intended here. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing. Now, Petros, that's Peter, is the masculine form of the Greek word for a small stone. Right? So it's Peter's name or small rock. Now, when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, that second word for rock is actually a different word. It's Petra. It's related, but it's not the same. And Petra could mean a, uh, it could mean a bedrock or a large formation uh, of, of rocks. And so when Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, he's not saying, Peter, upon you, I build my church. Not Peter specifically, anyway. Right? There are two likely interpretations of what Jesus' words mean that fit the context of all that follows in the New Testament. And that is, Jesus is either building his church on the foundation of Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, or he builds his church on the collective testimony, and that's why bedrock, right, of Peter and the rest of the disciples as they teach future disciples all that Jesus commanded them. Now, you could rightly say that the only referent here is Peter. It would be wise, actually, to recognize that the church would be built off Peter only in the sense of the truth that Peter had just uttered through divine revelation. Without the divine revelation from God, Peter does not, the deser- does not deserve the words of blessing from Jesus because it was God who revealed to Peter the truth of who Jesus was. Without that divine revelation to reveal the truth to Peter and the rest of the apostles, they would have been just as clueless as everyone who was going around speculating that he was John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. So merely being with Jesus was not enough to make it clear that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, regardless of whether you take what Jesus has just said as building the church off of Peter's testimony or the collective testimony of Peter and the other apostles of Jesus being the Christ, the emphasis is on Jesus and who he is. The emphasis is the fact that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and what he will do with that revelation that he is the Christ. Notice the emphasis on these next words, and on this rock I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. Okay, you look at the grammar, and I know that you guys don't like grammar. We don't pay attention to grammar. But notice the emphatic emphasis that Jesus has on it. Right, he says, you know, even when you look at, at the beginning of verse 18, he says, I say to you, I, being the subject, Jesus, say to you, Peter, the direct object. Right, and then he says, I will build my church. So who's the subject throughout this entire sentence? Jesus. Jesus is the subject. He is the one doing all of the action. He is doing all the action. And so the emphasis is not on Peter and what Peter does, but what Jesus will do to build his church. Now, Jesus does say in the future tense that he's going to build his church, but it doesn't mean that he has not already been building his church in the past. He has always been building his church with those who had believed in him in the past. And what we see here instead is that Jesus, when he says, on your testimony, I will build my church, he's saying, I will continue to build my church in the future. 
right? There's certainty that's there. There's nothing that will stop him. Jesus will certainly continue to build his church on the foundation of the apostles. Now, some people object to Jesus using the word church here because they say that the church wasn't established until Acts 2, so Jesus couldn't have been talking about the church as we know it. That's actually not a problem for us because church, the word ecclesia, is actually just a very general word that just means large assembly. Right? And so the fact that Jesus uses the word church here isn't Matthew reading back that word church into what Jesus said. Right? That's, that's not a problem for us because Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my assembly. I'm going to build my people. I'm going to build that church. And so the importance of the statement is not on whether Jesus could have actually said this, because people will tell you that he didn't actually say this, but on the implications of Jesus being the one who built his church. Now, you've probably heard it said, in our church, and maybe some other churches as well, in various ways and forms from various people, that the church is not a business. You've heard that to some extent before. Yes? The church is not a business. And this statement is absolutely true. We are not a business. We are a church. We are in the business. We are in the business of preaching the gospel. That's the only business that we got. Right? We're concerned primarily with the worship of God. And yet, I will admit that there are some business-like aspects that do apply to the church. We do have money. Right? We used to call the church family meeting the church business meeting, but you know, we didn't want to emphasize the business aspect of it, so we called the church family meeting. Right, there's aspects of the church that do uh, that, that business principles do apply to. Right? When we talk about how do we witness more to our community, we do talk about, in a sense, marketing, yeah? So there are aspects of the, uh, there are some business-like aspects that do come into the church. However, even though there are some business principles that rightly apply to the church, we must be careful that we don't accidentally adopt the mentality of, oh, if only the church did X, Y, Z, we would be more successful. And make those strategies the metric by which we determine success, the metric by which we determine faithfulness to God. If a church is small, perhaps God means for it to be small and to stay that way. If a church is large, then God certainly has a design for that church and its size. All that God really desires from his churches is faithfulness to his ordained mission for each one. Every church has a different ministry goal from God. In the grand scheme of things, of course, the, the, the primary mission that God wants for each one of his churches to do is to glorify him and to proclaim the name of Christ, right? proclaim salvation in Christ. Proclaim the gospel. That is the grand mission. But how each church individually does that, God has a different design for each one. Right? Someone who, who goes to Hillsong, for instance, someone who walks into Hillsong and hears the gospel from Hillsong might not necessarily come into San Francisco Bible Church. Because if they come in here, and they hear our preaching, and they hear, and they hear our songs. They just go, oh, the songs are so awful. They're so old and so slow. Right? Or they just look at the preacher, and they're just like, what's wrong with you? Why are you preaching about God's wrath against sin? Why don't you encourage me once in a while? But if the gospel is truly preached, and I, I mean, I just throw Hillsong out there as a general example. I don't mean to, like, slap anybody. If you like Hillsong, that's fine. Um, you know, there are people who, who will walk into a church, not SF Bible, who hear the true gospel being preached. And even if we don't agree with them on any other aspects of, of ministry, as long as they hear the true gospel preached, that's what really matters. Right? And we have to be humble enough to be okay with that. You know, back, um, we really don't have time for this, but I want to give it to you anyway. You know, back in Masters, uh, when I was there, um, that was when Mark Driscoll was really big. It was before he got in trouble for plagiarism and, and whatnot, uh, but he was really big, and someone was trying to goad one of my professors into bashing Mark Driscoll, um, and my professor is a super humble man, and he said, you know what? Okay, oh, oh. well, okay, well, b- back then, before all this other stuff came out, he said, you know what? 
I'm okay with Mark Driscoll because I know that people who walk into Driscoll's church will hear the gospel. And even if we don't agree with him on methodology of how to do church, people who walk into his church will hear the gospel. And these people won't necessarily walk into a Grace Community Church and feel at home because they look at all the people dressed in suits and they're just going to be weirded out immediately. And when I heard that from my professor, I thought that it was an incredibly humble thing for him to say. And, I, and it helped me a lot because coming from this church, going through systematic theology with Pastor Henry and Pastor Alton, I was really zealous for the truth. And for me, it was almost kind of like if you don't fit into my cookie-cutter idea of what church is, you're not a Christian. Or you're outside of God's design. You're a heretic. And that was the prideful heart that I had. And to hear my professor say, you know what, I thank God for a guy like Mark Driscoll because I know that he's going to preach the gospel to people who won't walk into my church, that was really humbling to me. That was really helpful to me because it helped me understand that it doesn't matter necessarily. I mean, okay, granted, yes, methodology does matter because the way that we implement scripture does matter, okay? That does matter. But what I'm saying is some of these little minor things that we kind of get all wrapped up in, they're not always that important. And so we have to have the humility to submit ourselves to the Lord and recognize that not everything is a die-on-the-hill matter, right? Not everything is a black and white, you're not a Christian, you are a Christian kind of thing, right? So we have to be humble about that. God has a specific plan for every single church, every single church that is faithful to the word, that is faithful to the gospel. And we see that in Revelation, right? The faithful churches... God commended them, and he blessed them. He promised them rewards. But those churches that were unfaithful, those churches that celebrated sin, those churches who were unfaithful and they celebrated sin, God condemned them, and he said, you know what? I'm going to take away your lampstand. I'm going to take away your ability to represent me before the world because you don't follow me. You've left your first love, and because of that, I leave you to destruction. I leave you to the outside. Brothers and sisters, it can be tempting to look at our church and to be hypercritical. Believe me, I've been there myself. And I do confess that I've complained to some of you before about it too. And I've ragged on this church. Of course, this was before I was a pastor. Um, and I, conf- you know, I confess that to you in humility because I was wrong. I might not necessarily have been wrong about my evaluation of what was going on here, but I was wrong to be hypercritical of the church, to look at our leadership and to tear them down, to criticize the structure of the church. This is God's church. It's not ours. We have to be humble. We have to humble ourselves, and we have to honor Christ's bride. This is not ours. This is his, and we can't be hypercritical. We have to remember that the church is, in a sense, always under construction. It's always improving. And the true measure of success in the church is not whether we conform to Grace Community Church, to Lighthouse Community Church, to Lighthouse Bible Church, or Berean, or any other ministry that's out there. That's not our measure of success. Our measure of success is how faithful are you with what God has stewarded you in the moment? What has God laid out before you? What has he given you right in front of you? Are you faithful in serving the church with what's right in front of you? Are you faithful in being a vital member of the body with the church that is right in front of you, with the body that is before you? That is the true measure of success. Are we faithful in glorifying God with what he's placed in front of us? And you know what? This is an Uncle Benism. God has placed you in this church at this moment and at this time. He's enriched you with this stewardship. He's given you a lot of experience from church ministry. It's a great stewardship. It's a great responsibility to be faithful to him and his word. And you have that responsibility with all that stewardship to do great things for the Lord, to be faithful to him. Now, why am I calling you to be faithful? Because isn't it true that Jesus just said that he's going to build his church, which implies 
that he will continue to build and establish his church, even if we're rebellious? Absolutely. It is true that God will continue to build his church, even if the church isn't doing what we're supposed to do. But let us strive with all that we have to please him and to be used by him for his glory rather than bringing shame to his name by rebelling against him when we know better. As Jesus says that he will build, that he himself will build the church, he also mentions the gates of Hades shall not overpower the church. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, right off the bat, it's important to note that the popular interpretation of this passage that says that the attacks of hell will not prevail against the church is not, okay, is not what Jesus is saying here. The word Hades is often associated with death and hell in Greek culture, but in Hebrew culture, it's associated with that word Sheol which is understood by a Jewish audience like the disciples as death or afterlife rather than eternal hell. So we're not talking about hell. We're talking about afterlife, where dead people reside. And when you look at the word gate, gate is not typically thought of, gates are not typically thought of as an offensive weapon, right? When you think about a gate, it's to keep people out. No one in battle says, look out, here come the gates, Unless you're talking about like, you know, people with the last name Gates, right? You don't say, ah, Gates are coming. No, it's like, no, the Gates are before you, right? The Gates keep people out. Or if you want to think about it this way, Gates keep people in too, yes? The Gates of Hades, the Gates of Afterlife, it keeps the dead in them. It keeps them inside the realm of afterlife. And when Jesus says that the gates of Hades will not overpower the church, what he is saying is that though the church will have some of its members die while, while they ultimately wait to be with God in heaven, death is not strong enough to keep Christ's church in. Death is not strong enough to keep Christ's church in. Death will have no power over him. Therefore, it will not have any power over those who he has freed from the curse of sin. Granted, we are cheating ahead a little bit theologically, but this is what sets Jesus up in just a few verses to say to his disciples that he will be killed and raised up on the third day. Death will not keep Jesus in. It will not keep him prisoner. And therefore, when you and I place our faith in him, Right? He frees us from the curse of sin, which is death. That is why we have the hope of eternal life. Because the gates of Hades will not prevail over the church. Jesus sets the table for us to understand that death is not our final resting place. For those of us who are in the church, death does not stop us. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees, they confront Jesus and they try and trick him with a legal question. Or they, pro- they propose a ridiculous scenario where a wife had married multiple husbands, but every time she marries them, they like, die shortly after. Right? And they say, Jesus, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now, they didn't believe that resurrection was going to happen, but they were kind of playing on that, saying, like, well, you believe in this ridiculous thing. Let's give you a ridiculous question. And Jesus corrects them and he says, look, There's going to be no marriage anyway, so you're wrong about that. You're wrong about that understanding. But not only that, but you do not understand what the scriptures say because you say that once once we die, there's nothing left. There's just death. But back in Exodus, when God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Isaac, sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. And everyone's stunned. He's like, whoa. Jesus just like disarmed them twice. He cuts straight to that belief and he says, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, which means that for those who believe in Christ, for those who have been saved by him, death is not your final stop. The death will not keep you in, but you will have hope. You will have life with him in heaven. And so not only Will Jesus build his church and establish it so that those who are his will not be imprisoned by death? But he also gives us authority to minister on his behalf here on on earth. Verse 19, it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
Now, upon first read, it appears that Jesus is giving Peter and the church authority to make decisions here on earth that will affect what God will do in heaven. That amount of authority is unprecedented. And if used wrongly, it would kind of make God out to be like a magic genie doing whatever the church asks, right? Now, this language of binding and loosing, it was used by the religious leaders to communicate what God had permitted and forbidden in the law. So in this context, what Jesus is saying is that the church has authority to communicate what God has already divinely permitted or forbidden on earth. And that interpretation is indicated by verb tenses. Look at what Jesus says. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound. Right? Not will be, but shall have been bound. Right? Whatever you loose, it's not will be, but shall have been loosed. What we have here are future perfect verbs. And that indicates that when Peter and the church make a decision, it will be found to have already been made true in heaven. This makes Peter and the rest of the church leadership faithful stewards of God's prior decisions, not initiators of new directions for the church. And so we as a church, we have a delegated authority from God to tell people what he has already determined in heaven. Right? It's, it's by those truths, those truths that he's revealed in his word that we have authority to tell people what God's word says, what is true and what is not true. And so there is no my truth business, right? What's your truth? What's your truth? There's none of that. That doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what is God's truth. This relative truth does not matter. The only truth that matters is the objective truth of the word of God. And that is our, therefore, our responsibility to study it and to faithfully abide by it. Now, verse 20 is the end of our paragraph, and it doesn't seem to have any bearing to us now, but it does remind us of the perfect timing of God's plans. When Jesus warns the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ, this is not a forever prohibition not to tell people who he is, right? Otherwise, you and I would not get the gospel. Rather, it's a temporary prohibition to allow for his plan to unfold in his timing. The people were not to be told that Jesus is the Messiah because at that time they wouldn't have understood what that meant. They would have just thought that Jesus being Messiah would mean that he's the political savior riding in on a war horse with a sword to kill all the Romans. That's what they would have thought. And while he ultimately will deliver the people from their enemies, that's not the plan that God had wanted to establish at that time. And since that revelation was to come later, Jesus tells his disciples to hold on to that particular bit of information until the right time comes. But brothers and sisters, that time has passed. Okay, that time has passed. And it is for this reason that we proclaim as the church Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, to all who will hear us. He lived so he might die on the cross for us. And like he said, the gates of Hades will not overpower him or his church. And our Lord lives today. And he's coming back. And those of us who have placed our faith in him have that hope that the gates of Hades will not keep us or our believing loved ones from him. We have the hope that we will be with him in heaven one day. And because of that good news, because of that great hope, that we have in Christ. We as a church, we gather together to sing praises to our God, to worship him with all that we have and with all that we are. Because of that, we encourage and we exhort one another to do good works, not for our own sake, but so that the world could see the power of Jesus' name, so that they could see that when you believe in Jesus Christ, it actually means something. It actually does something. It's not just something that we believe and we live under the delusion that we just have to be good and go to church. But then we live hypocritically on the other days of the week. Right? The power of Jesus Christ's name means something. It changes our lives. So that when people look at us, they say, you're different. Why? 
And we can say, it's because of the power of Jesus Christ. It's because he saved me and he gave me a new heart so that even though I sin, even though I stumble, I know that I'm forgiven. Right? That's why we get together and we strive together to be like Christ. That's why we exhort you to read your Bibles, to get together in, in flock groups, to spur one another on in discipleship, to become more like Christ. We do that because the power of Jesus Christ to save is everything. It's everything to us. And we as a church, we exist to hold that up to the rest of the world so that they can see that there is something good that comes from the church. And it's not just a moral good, but it is the divine goodness of God himself and that he actually is worth worshiping. We proclaim to them the good news found in him so that hopefully they might be forgiven and that they will live. And for that reason, we gather. For that reason, we strive with all that we have to glorify God in our obedience to his word. Brothers and sisters, that is why we desire to be obedient to the word. It's not because we want you to be legalists. It's not because we want to, f- to make you all good little Pharisees to go out into the world and just pretend like you're better than everybody else. Okay, if we wanted that, we would just give you a, a rule book and have you memorize it, and you don't even have to come to church. Right, but we want for you to be beacons of light, hope to the rest of the world so that they can see the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the cornerstone upon which the church is built. He guarantees the building up of his body and that his will will be done. And he delegates to us borrowed authority so that we can tell the world what he has done and what he has said. And as our cornerstone, he sets our foundational beliefs and direction. And as he builds us up and gives us the tools and the power to accomplish his plans, we are reminded that we exist as the church to bring glory to him. And we never forget that. And we never forget that that's why we as a church are here on this earth. While we may be tempted to only think of the church that we attend of as our church, we remember that the church belongs first and foremost to Christ. He is our divine foundation and the cornerstone upon which we are built. And if Christ is at the center of the life of the church and the focus of every single ministry of the church, any programs or ministries that we develop here in the church must be committed to the honor and glory of Christ. And as God continues to bless us and grow us and we rightly adapt to meet to the needs of those who are among us, may we never forget And we never forget that our central purpose in the ministry is to love Christ, to exalt him in the hearts of everyone who gathers here, and to bring him honor as we obey his word. Yes, we are here to serve those who enter in through our doors, but our ministry is only effective so long as we emphasize Christ to them. He is our divine foundation and our cornerstone who builds his church to fulfill his purposes on earth until he calls us home to be with him. And until that glorious day comes, may we please him in all that we do and not confuse ministry for church. We're about him, about his worship. That's what we exist for. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word and for how it so powerfully emphasizes your involvement in it. Lord, we know that if it was left up to us, that the ministry of the church would only just be a social work. That it would only be faithful as long as we have manpower to do good deeds. But yet, because of your power, because of your word, we understand that we're bigger than that. And that we're not necessarily here just to minister to people's needs, but we're here, uh, well, we're not necessarily here just to minister to their physical needs, but we're here ultimately to minister to their greatest need, salvation in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And so, Father, as we, as we think more about the church and what it means to be your church and how that impacts our lives, may you be glorified. May we humble ourselves before you and have 
and have a humble view of your bride and to love your bride because we love you. Forgive us, Father, for any wrong views that we've had of the church, for any hardness of heart that we've had, for our hypercritical hearts at times, and help us, Lord, to humbly love those whom you love. Pray that you bless the fellowship that we have after, and it's in your sentence and we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your faithful attention. Um, I do have some application questions for you. Uh, so if you, uh, have some, if you have some time, you don't have to run away right away. Just uh, turn to some of the people near you and just discuss some of these things. Uh, if it doesn't make sense, I'm sorry. Um, I had it all typed. I had the entire PowerPoint all like typed out and whatnot, and then there was an issue syncing it, so I had to quickly try and recreate it. So if it makes no sense, I apologize, but you get the gist of it. So uh, yeah, just uh, take a few moments now um, till about, I believe, 9.30 to uh, discuss amongst yourselves, and um, yeah, have a blessed night, and I'll see you later in, during the fellowship time.